When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On today's crew call, we have the producers from Warner Brothers' The Color Purple, Oprah Winfrey and Scott Sanders, who tell us about taking their Broadway musical to the big screen. Oprah Winfrey and Scott Sanders, welcome. Thank you, Anthony. Nice to be here. Yay, Anthony. So, Oprah, I, I remember at the Los Angeles premiere for The Color Purple, you had mentioned that you needed to ask permission of Steven Spielberg to make this movie. And I always wondered why, since it was an adaptation of your own Broadway musical. I think it's because Steven maintained the rights to the motion picture. Yeah, Steven and Warner Brothers. Yeah, Steven and Warner Brothers maintained the rights to the motion picture and any ability to produce any kind of replica or any ongoing series or anything connected with The Color Purple. Because I remember at one time, Scott had wanted to do a primetime special. Yeah, I think Bob Greenblatt at NBC wanted to go live from Broadway one night. And uh, we had considered that at one point, but uh, that just wasn't feasible at the, at the time. So I th Oprah, I think you're right. I think there were no, because even in my original uh, rights package to make the musical, there were no film or television rights. So we had to we had to secure those in order to do this. Right, right. So it was always up to Stephen whether or not he wanted to do that. And I think for, you know, a while he did not. I don't think he wanted another version of The Color Purple. He thought, as I, as did I, as did I for a long time, that don't touch it because as you've heard me speak of it so fondly before, I mean, I just felt like, I don't know how you're going to top that or that the original had become a classic and that was that. And it was Scott who actually convinced me back in 2018 that now was the time that we were in the middle of the Me Too movement or at the height of it and all the talk about empowerment for women and what it meant in this era versus what it meant almost 40 years ago when we were doing it, and certainly what it meant in the time period that Alice Walker uh, wrote the story, was essentially the same, and that women needing to be able to claim their own voices and claim their own power was as important in this era as it has been in eras past. So that's how it happened. Did the Broadway revival, though, also provide some momentum to get this to the screen? I don't know if it provided a momentum. I, I saw the Broadway revival as its own entity. You know, when Gail actually called me in Chicago and said, you need to come see the Color Purple on Broadway. They're, they're doing rehearsal and you need to talk to this guy, Scott Sanders. I said to her, how on earth is anybody going to be doing a musical about the color purple. I don't even see how that's possible. So I don't even, I said, I don't know. I don't want to waste my time. 
And Gail said, Gail said she didn't want to waste her time either, Anthony, and that she had gone at, I think your request, Scott, and she yes. had gone and as she entered the space, said, I have a meeting in, in a half an hour because she planned to get out. She'd gone with every intention of leaving and getting herself out of it and ended up staying for the full rehearsal and then calling me saying, you've got to come see this. Wow. I remember going over to her. It was it was a workshop before we even got a theater in 2005. And Gail came and she said, I have a lunch at one. How long is this? Yes. And I said, yes. two hours. And she said, well, I'm not going to be able to stay for both acts. And I said, well, that's a shame because the, you know, the, the ending is, is more uplifting than the beginning. And at the end of the first act, I went over to her and I said, I'm really sorry. You're not going to be able to stay. I'd love to have you back as my guest when we come to Broadway. And she had a tear coming down her face and she said, I've canceled my lunch. I'm staying. And I went, wow. Okay. And then I start walking back to my seat and she shouts across the room. Oh, and by the way, I just emailed Oprah and told her you're doing her proud. And I turned around the dumbest thing I've ever said in my whole life. I said, you have Oprah's email address. <laughs> <laughs> and Carol Feynman sitting next to me, she says, you do know she's her best friend, don't you? And I said, oh my gosh. Yeah. So that's how it happened. Yeah. There's my email address, the main line, <laughs> the phone line, but yeah. But then the next the next day I was in Soho and uh, shopping and my cell phone rings and it says no caller ID and I know normally don't ever answer those and I didn't and I get this voicemail hey Scott it's Oprah Winfrey I'm hearing great things about the color purple I'll call you later and I'm frantically trying to find Gail saying oh my God I just missed her phone call and she said what are you doing today and I said I'm getting a massage at three and she said. If you have to take that phone into the massage room, you do that because she's going to call you. <laughs> That's funny. I didn't know that. But Scott, tell us, what did you see in the novel that would lend itself to being a musical? Yes. There were two things. First and foremost, knowing how significant music has been to Black culture for hundreds of years, you know, not even the last 50 years, but like, you know, hundreds of years, music has been such- Scott went to a black high school. He went to a black high school. That's how he knew. But, but, but like, I mean, all, you know, I mean, even all the way back to the continent of Africa, you know, music and sonic percussion and all, all, all of that has been part of culture. And Anthony, you know, in musical theater, when something's too emotional to say it, you sing it. So those two things sort of gelled together, but probably the most important thing is that Seely, as a character in, in fiction or nonfiction, is the most profound and uplifting and inspiring protagonist I've ever read. I mean, just, just the idea that this woman went through what she went through and put one foot in front of the other day after day to move forward in her own personal growth, to also have the grace and compassion to give love and to be caring to Sophia and Harpo and Suge Avery along the way, made her for a fascinating, almost Shakespearean type protagonist. So I, I felt it was very organic and very natural. The Color Purple has music in its soul. And, you know, I mean, I remember telling Whoopi Goldberg back in those days that I had just gotten the rights to Alice's book to do as a musical. And she said, 
really? You're doing the color purple as a musical. What's next? Schindler's list, the musical. And so there were a lot of doubters back in those days. And I had to, I think my naivete was probably my best friend because I think, I think had I listened to all those voices, I wouldn't have done it. Yeah. And quite frankly, at, at my age now, if I would have thought about it and got all those no's, I probably still wouldn't have done it. So I'm really glad I didn't listen to all those doubters at the time. Yeah, because I was a doubter until I actually saw it. And then I thought, I didn't just see it. I experienced and felt it. And I, I saw how it could come to be something meaningful and powerful on stage. But just hearing about it, if you were pitching me and saying, you know, would you like to invest? I'd, I'd, I'd be running from, from that. But you did invest. But I did invest after seeing it. I had to see it. So adapting the music to the screen, tell me about that. Is it an easy one-for-one type of thing, segueing one song to another song? Obviously, we have a new song by Holly Bailey, but what stays, what goes? You know, that was a really, really important, um, on any adaptation, I mean, you know, I, I also produced In the Heights, and with Lynn and Kiara and John Chu, we also had a lengthy conversation about about that. But as it relates to uh, this, you're you're dealing with the book as a source material. You're dealing with the musical for Broadway, and then you're dealing with a writer in Marcus Gardley, who we wanted to give free reign to really think about how he wanted to tell this story. The first thing he wanted to do was bring magical realism into the story, and that that was going to open up. Celie's imagination and let the audience in on what this woman was feeling and 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 doing and thinking about and dreaming about and projecting forward in her life. So that started the conversation about what the bones of the story was going to be. Obviously, we had all the songs available from the musical to use for this. Um, most of them were used. There were some times that scenes were replaced those songs or dialogue replaced those songs. There was actually a song called She Be Mine that was written in 2004 for the musical and was cut from the musical that Marcus said he really wanted to put back into the movie. And that was very exciting to think about how that could manifest itself. We also knew that we wanted to have another beat in the story that showed the young Celie and young Nettie sort of in their innocence. And that's how the Halle Bailey Keep It Moving song came about. And that was placed in the in the first act to give the audience a sense of their uh, youth and, and innocence at that point. Um, and then Blitz obviously needed to think about, and his music team needed to think about how to adapt a Broadway score into a cinematic score and make it feel bigger and more lush. And so they divided the music into three buckets and said there was gospel, blues, and jazz. And he brought in Ricky Dillard to do new arrangements and gospel arrangements and choral arrangements for all the gospel songs. He brought Christian McBride in to do uh, jazz arrangements and a legendary Keb Moe to do the blues arrangements. And so all of that, along with Chris Bowers, who was the composer of the original score, they all worked together in a tapestry, really, to create this bigger, more lush sound. So, you know, in many ways, our movie's a hybrid. You know, it's 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 the best of the Broadway musical. It's the best of Alice Walker's book adapted in present day perspective. 
and a few Easter eggs from Steven's movie that I'm so delighted after all these months and months and months of watching how the sausage was made to actually see how it all came together and how the audience is now from every age, from the original Oprah Winfrey, Whoopi Goldberg, Danny Glover, Steven Spielberg, Quincy Jones movie lovers, to the book lovers, to the Broadway lovers. And now you've got all of those people, plus people that have never experienced The Color Purple ever seen this movie. Mm. And then Finding Blitz, Bazawule, he launched out of a cannon, you know, with Beyonce's Black as King. But what was it about his, his artistry that made you guys go, he needs to do this? He came so prepared. We had interviewed multiple other directors prior to him, and he walked into the Zoom space with his storyboards and a presentation that was really dazzling, I would have to say. Scott and I were texting each other during his presentation going, he's the one, that's it. <laughs> and he got the magical realism to the T. I mean, he was able to show us that photograph recording and them dancing on the phone. Yes, them dancing on it. And he was able to make it real for us in a way that felt like, ah, that made Marcus's script come alive. And it was, you know, hands down, that's the guy, you know it, which is fantastic, as you know, Anthony, when everybody agrees, oh, that's the guy. And somebody's not saying, oh, but what about the other? No, we all agreed, oh, that's the guy, because he got the magical realism and understood how to tap into Seeley's imagination. And tapping into Seeley's imagination is what makes this so different uh, and also makes this version so different. And also, as uh, Fantasia has said many times, it's the thing that convinced her to do it because when she was playing, playing Seeley on Broadway, the ability to express that imaginative force was not there. And it is allowing that imaginative creativity living through her hope for what could be possible is what was so healing for her and also makes it a new reimagined vision for our audience. Tell me about assembling the cast. I mean, hmm. perfection. Hmm. How much time did it take? Did everybody audition? Yeah. Oh, everybody had to audition. Yeah, I mean, it was, first of all, let's let's put us in, in, in a time frame. We were in the middle of COVID. Um, there were no in-person auditions going on anywhere. You were not allowed to bring people into a room. It was not safe to do so. And we were doing a musical. You know, it was very clear and and lots of musicals. You had to sing. Yeah, lots of musical. There have been many musicals over the years where someone, an actor comes in who can't sing and they dub them. We made a we made a philosophical decision early on that we wanted everyone to be able to sing. You know, whether they sang live yeah, yeah. or pre-record or a combination of both, but everyone was And why is that? Cuz it's a musical. And 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 and, and authenticity is a very big part of this film. Of this story, of yeah. this story. So you couldn't, you couldn't have a Seely who couldn't sing. And Blitz was, you know, Blitz had no history with uh, the Broadway show or, or Stephen's movie. And so he came to it with a fresh eye and we asked him initially, so how would you like 
to cast this movie. And he, he started with what I would call a casting philosophy. He said, when we are finished, and he put a board on the wall and he had old mister at the top with an OG underneath, whoever that was going to be was going to be an OG. He wanted young, up-and-coming, emerging artists in the young Sealy, young Nettie department. He wanted thespians. He wanted real singers. He wanted people from the music business. He said, I want, when we're finished, I want people to look at our cast and say, this is the best of black culture living and working in the profession today. And that was a big, ambitious goal to have. And we also know that we're working with a studio who is giving us tremendous resources to do this. And they have a voice in this. The producers have a voice in this. Blitz obviously has a very important voice in this. We had a casting department. And so it was a team effort. And because everyone was working remotely, you know, I know there's been some conversations about, you know, well, I had to audition. Well, everybody had to audition because there were many voices in the room to approve who was going to be in this film. It started with director, casting director, and producers, but then it goes to the studio and, and, and everyone else. So, so we went, and even though, even if people like Danielle had done it for a year on Broadway, you know, half the people at the studio had never seen that production. So we had to, we had to get tapes and we had to share them and we had to give our reasons why we were endorsing this candidate or that candidate to be in the, in the role. It did take, I don't know, Oprah, it was a good six to nine month period from the time we started with actor number one and went through it. And, you know, obviously you're dealing with a lot of people's schedules. Again, we were in COVID, so no one was working and people had commitments that they had made before COVID that they weren't sure if they were going to have to do as soon as COVID was over. So could they even take this movie? It was a, it was a very challenging jigsaw puzzle to put together, but one that each time a new person came in, I mean, I remember Oprah and I would be like, Oh my God, like her, her had a, her said yes. Her, yeah. When her had a general zoom with blitz, there was no role specific to talk about. It was like, can you even do this movie? You're planning a concert tour with Coldplay. And she said, I want to be in this movie. I will tell my team I want to be in this movie. You tell me the role that you want me to play. And then we started talking about Squeak. And then there was a big question of, well, her concert tour is coinciding exactly when you're shooting. And we weren't sure we were going to be able to do it. And finally, she called and said, give me the dates. I am doing this movie. And they'll make my concert tour work around it. And we're like, oh my, and, mm. and the same thing with John Batiste. I mean, we her were, said yes, her said yes, her said yes. Yeah. And then John Batiste said, I want to do it. And, and, and Blitz said, he won't cut his hair. Do you think we can get that wig on his, on his head? Dreads. Yeah, he had those long dreads. And so Lawrence, our, our head of hair, started designing wigs and flew to New York to meet with John in masks backstage at the Colbert show to put wigs on to see how that would work. So it was a fun process. But the Easter scene was the only scene in which all of them appeared. <laughs> sort of. Could both of you talk about getting them all together for that scene? Well, I say sort of because 
first of all, that's one of the hardest scenes to shoot. Anybody will tell you, I think any director, that dinner table scenes are, are challenging. That one in particular, because it's iconic. I remember 39 years ago, that is the day or the days that I think I actually stepped into acting. Up until then, I was terrified that I was going to be thrown off the set any day. And it was that scene that actually allowed me to feel like, okay, I'm here, I'm solid. Because that scene lasted three days. And I happened to be the last one shot. And as it turned out for our cast, I think it was the most challenging of scenes because on the very first day, someone got COVID. So the wide shot had been done, but the rest of the scene had to be pieced together with different people who didn't have COVID or were off the COVID schedule of, you know, waiting to see if they did have COVID. And so Danielle, who did such an incredible job as Sophia, had to do that on three separate days, three separate times. The first time she did it was just herself and Corey in the room with other actors just reading the lines, day player actors reading the lines. And I remember her calling me going, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? There isn't even anybody in the room. It's just Corey and I. And I said, you were born for this. You were born for this. This is the moment. By the third time she was doing it again, I was like, you got to call on the ancestors, girl. <laughs> by the third, not just third take. I mean, third separate day. Third yeah. separate day, they've rescheduled it. You've gone on to shoot other things and now you come back to reshoot that again. And you've gone on to shoot other things and now you come back to shoot that again. She had to do that on multiple occasions, multiple takes. And that scene where she starts laughing uh, when Seely, you know, s says that Mr.'s a sack of dead horses shit and it finally gets Sophia out of her funk and she starts to laugh. And then turns into the cry. And then that segue into an emotional cry when she looks at Celie and says, I know there's a God because he's living in you. I mean, that's one of the most amazing acting performances I've ever seen in my life. And the fact that she had to do that, as Oprah said, three separate days, sometime with stand-ins and a camera shooting over somebody else's shoulder while she had to do that without the benefit of the entire table is truly remarkable. Yeah. Without the table and, 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 and without the person to actually react to, you know, unbelievable. Now, Oprah, you produced several projects. How is this different? Well, this was different because I have so much passion and emotion and connection to what the color purple has meant in my life at the time. I was 31 years old, discovered by Quincy Jones, who was, you know, going through Chicago. And it became a seminal uh, foundation for everything that really mattered in my life. Because I had gone to Amblin for the final audition preparation with Steven Spielberg and saw that he owned Amblin, that actually gave me the idea of owning myself. Oh, it's possible for somebody to own a studio and own themselves, it never occurred to me that. Because I experienced The Color Purple with Stephen and Alice and Minnow and Alan Davio, all, all that team that just was just vibing every day in fields of creativity, 
I was inspired to create that for myself with Harpo Studio so that, so that work doesn't feel like work. So the idea of work not actually being work, but being a creative venue for everybody just to put their best stuff together, that also came from that. And, you know, it just, it just taught me so much about my own life, about loving and appreciating the work that you're doing, about owning yourself because of the color purple. And at the time that I did it, Anthony, I only had two weeks vacation for ABC WLS TV. And I ended up saying to my bosses at WLS, local television, I will give up all of my vacation for the remainder of my contract if you just let me finish this film. And they did. And after that, my attorney, my attorney said, when it came time to renegotiate, you never want to be in that position again. So let's talk about you owning yourself so that you never have to be in the position to ask somebody if you can take leave. So that is the reason I went from a paid talent. The color purple is the reason I went from a paid talent to someone who actually owned my own self and owned my own studio. All of that happened because of that film. So when I say the color purple played a major role in my life, it wasn't like, oh, I just got to be in this film. It was the foundation for the way I operated going forward after that film, seeing how Steven operated, Quincy operated, everybody else operated, and most importantly, owning myself because I gave up everything to be able to do it. Now, Oprah, you said to a rival trade publication that the box office performance of The Color Purple would likely affect the future of other Black-centric projects that you're developing. How do you feel about the performance today? I feel like we did exactly what we wanted to do in terms of rallying the base for supporting us on Christmas Day. I wish that we had said, okay, and after Christmas Day, you all need to still keep going to the theaters. Because I think the message was very clear that everybody should go out on Christmas Day and everybody should be wearing their purple and they should you know, do everything you could to support the movie uh, during that time. I wish that more people were going to the theaters, you know, every weekend now, but I also am looking forward to it being available for the rest of the country and the rest of the world so that they can just hit a button and there it is on SVOD and there, you know, you get exposed to the story and to the, to the beautiful work that we have done. Would I like to have seen more box office? Yes. But I'm also excited about it being made available to everyone else. We really want it seen. I mean, that's the most important thing is we want people to experience the film. We were so excited, though. We were so excited that, you know, I've never been a person who left the house on Christmas Day. I actually did this Christmas to go to theater in Maui. Uh, but I, I was I was just so thrilled and grateful that people actually got up and left their houses to go to a theater on Christmas day to support it. Yeah. I, I have friends who, who said, I haven't been to a movie theater in two years. I'm going to see the color purple. So yeah. Yeah. Oprah, what is the next immediate feature project you're looking to get off the ground? Oh, I don't have a feature project that I'm looking to get off the ground. It is a multi-part series based on the book that I chose last year. And I've never done this before. I've never chosen a book and then said I wanted to also do a film. I always thought, oh, I don't want people to think there's a conflict, but I love this book 
The Covenant of Water so much by Abraham Verghese that I bought the rights to it and really am excited that as soon as I get off of these purple streets, I can start the process of interviewing writers and talking about bringing that to life as a, as a multi-part series. That's my new big dream is The Covenant of Water, Anthony by Abraham Verghese and finding the screenwriter who can bring that to life is is going to be an exciting process. Oprah Winfrey and Scott Sanders, thank you so much. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks for listening to this episode of Deadline's Crew Call podcast. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.